Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Welcome to season two of Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. We're doing things a little bit differently with season two. These next few episodes are going to be about the Jeffrey Epstein case. Today, producer Jamie and I are going to discuss some of the facts of the case, where everything stands now, and what may happen going forward. On our next episode, I'm going to sit down with civil attorney Bradley Edwards. He's been repping Epstein survivors since 2008, and he has quite a story to tell. We'll then bring you another guest who's going to fill you in on how they got this story out to everyone. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. Jamie, have you ever heard of Jeffrey Epstein? Um, yes, and <laughs> I hadn't actually heard of him much until I saw the Netflix documentary mm-hmm. was posted. I think everybody had heard a few things in the news as you know, information related to his case was shared by the media, but I don't think I understood it at all until I watched the Netflix documentary. It's shocking. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. I think that, you know, for people who are giant nerds like me, I had been kind of following it for a while, but it's obviously an occupational hazard, I think. But yeah, until um, James Patterson published his book uh, in 2016, and then Brad Edwards published his in 2020, and then the documentary in 2020, I think that people had no idea like how prolific this actually is. And on such a grand scale with um, a lot of powerful people involved, I think. Definitely. I, I think the general public probably wasn't aware of just how deep this story actually went until the Netflix documentary came out. And it just really explained a little bit more about who Jeffrey Epstein was and what he was doing and everything that led up to his arrest. I mean, it's so true. I, I think that to truly try to understand and grasp all of this, you do have to talk about who he actually was. And, you know, he was born in 1953 um, in Brooklyn to working class parents. So he had a really humble beginning, but they could tell early on that he was gifted. Um, He was reported as having a brilliant mind for mathematics. I think he even skipped a couple grades and childhood friends and even some people met throughout his life still have nice things to say about him. And so I get the idea that he was very charming and manipulative from a young age and that's not surprising at all because these types of offenders have to be charming and manipulative because that's how they gain access to victims most of the time of course in this case it also helped that he had a billion dollars definitely i think charismatic is definitely a word that describes his characteristics and i noticed that both james Patterson mentioned that in his book mm-hmm. and bradley edwards mentioned it as well upon his first meeting with epstein Yeah, he really was. And you can even see it in the footage from some of the depositions. Like he's being an ass, but he's quick. He's got a quick wit. And I am sure in the right context that he was liked by people a lot. We'll get into that a little bit more in a bit, talking about uh, Galen Maxwell too. So he has humble beginnings. He gets out of high school, he goes to college, but he's only there for a couple of years. I think he'd already seen that he had a taste for the high life and he wanted in on that. So 
What's interesting is he started teaching at the Dalton School on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. This is like the it school for all the bougie people in New York City. So like all of the rich people are sending their kids there. And now here's this dude who doesn't even have a college education. Now, of course, he lied on his application and they didn't know that at the time. But he I mean, he was just so smart. This guy has been, you know, calculating and cunning since he was a young man. He's only 21 years old. He weasels his way into this high profile school where he thinks he might, um, you know, be able to meet some people who will set him on his way. And he was not disappointed. He did come into contact with Ace Greenberg, who at the time was a high level executive at Bear Stearns, which was a brokerage firm very high profile back in the 80s. It's since gone under in the 2008 financial crisis. I don't think it survived. I think it was absorbed by somebody else. And um, But back then, it was a pretty big deal. And I read in the James Patterson book that Greenberg was known for recruiting guys who are like a little uh, rough around the edges. He didn't care about the Ivy League schools. He didn't care about all that. He had come from humble beginnings himself, you know, brought himself up by his bootstraps. And he looked for what the authors called the PSDs, poor, smart, and determined. And I think that Epstein fit that bill very well. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's only 23 when he gets hired there and he does a really good job. He works his way up pretty quickly. He's only there a couple of years and he makes junior partner, which, you know, is a big deal. He's making pretty good money, especially in the seventies. And he's only there about five years and he resigns amid scandal. Shock, shock. There were like some scandals going on within the company about his expense reports. And then also about a loan of some sort, but Epstein himself testified, or I I don't think he testified. I think he was just giving a statement to the FBI when they were investigating all of the financial stuff. He claimed that it was he left because of an illicit affair with a secretary, which at the time raised no red flags for the investigators because they're like, okay, this ladies, man, whatever. But, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight. So looking back, we're saying, oh, wow, in 1976, that's the first record we have of some sort of illicit sexual conduct. And, you know, here we are, however many years later, I'm a lawyer, I don't do math, but any, you know, he's up to it that entire time, I'm sure. So he gets out of there and it seems like he kind of just skated through the 80s. People said he had kind of like a Gatsby-esque uh, air of mystery around him. Like everyone was like, I don't know where he made his money. I know he has a lot of it, but I don't know. And he he did. I think that he perpetuated that. He wanted people to think that he was like this glamorous guy who had this clandestine type of job and more than likely probably was just doing a bunch of shady stuff and helping rich people not pay taxes is what most people think. But it's just really interesting because you can see when you're reading the books, when you're watching the documentaries, when you're reading the articles, that he groomed his colleagues in a way that was not dissimilar to how sex offenders groom victims. I mean, it's important to point out that that's what this type of offender does. They don't just groom their victims. They groom everyone around them. They want people to think like if it comes out in the news, it comes out in the media, they want people to think, Oh no, not him when they're finally exposed. And it's part of the process and it makes sense. Um, It's disgusting, but you know, how many people have we known who are like, oh, you know, child molesters, let's let's hang them high. And then when it's someone they know, like, oh, yeah, but it couldn't be him. Well, yeah, it could. If they were monsters all the time, then it would be a lot easier to tell, oh, hey, look, I see him. He's a child molester. No, 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 no. 
they're much scarier than that. And so the behaviors that he was exhibiting toward these rich people, because he was so charismatic and charming and smart, I think that he manipulated him in a, a very similar way including one of the richest billionaires, Les Wexner, who owned all kinds of companies, including he was a founder, I think, of the limited women's clothing company. And they were very close for a long while. And not everybody was completely snowed by Jeffrey Epstein. Some people, they figured it out pretty quickly. And I know that Les Wexner, the people that were his close colleagues and friends, they didn't like Jeffrey Epstein. And they could not understand what Les saw in him. But he saw something and they were pretty good friends for a long time. It wasn't until 2019 that Wexner ever spoke publicly on Epstein and he revealed that he had been estranged from him since 2007 and said that he had stolen $46 million from him. He reportedly said he'd been taken advantage of by someone so sick, so cunning, so depraved, and he was embarrassed he was even close to him. And some people speculate that that $46 million is what led to his eventual however much he had. Now that's kind of a thing that's up for debate too. Somewhere around a billion dollars is what they say. Some people speculate more. Other people are like, hey, so I've been a billionaire. Whatever. He certainly had a billionaire's lifestyle. And some people speculate that it's because he stole that $46 million and turned that into a massive fortune. So pretty crazy stuff. So he's using the 80s to just manipulate the people around him and continue to make more money. So by the time 1990 rolls around, he's doing pretty well. He's got himself a lot going on. And that is when he buys the infamous Palm Beach mansion. And it's that mansion that is going to have, will be later be the subject of an, a search warrant by the Palm Beach Police Department. But that's far off. But it's there that Epstein perpetrated untold number of sexual acts um, with oh, probably well. hundreds of girls right. over 30 years. It's just, it's disgusting. <laughs> I think the thing it, that strikes me the most about that is in everything that you watch in the Netflix documentary and in reading the book, Patterson's book, as well as Edward's book, it was kind of like, a not really a secret, right? Like it was something that a lot of people knew about. A lot of people knew or felt like some sketchy things were going down mm-hmm. at that mansion there in West Palm Beach, but yet no one really did anything about it. And it makes you wonder why, why did people not say anything? And I feel like it had a lot to do with, you know, just the fear of this very powerful Mm -hmm. wealthy person. And it's like, well, are you really going to say you have some belief that something might be going on? And you don't know that for a fact, because I don't really think you want to bring somebody's wrath down on you if you're wrong. Right. It's a serious allegation. And I thought the same thing as I was reading through it. I'm like, oh my gosh, when he's doing this on such a large scale, he is sexually abusing underage girls. They had to have known. And a couple of people noted they did know, people did know, and they just didn't do anything. And I think that that's a societal issue that we have. I think that it is starting we're starting to experience a cultural shift. I really do believe that. And I think it's going to get better. But for a long time, people have just stayed out of it. They've turned their head. They've looked the other way. And it's hard for us sitting here to understand that. But it just, unfortunately, is a fact of the matter. This is what happens all of the time. But it's like, how in the world did so many people have to know? And no one, literally no one ever did anything at all. Because when the first report came in, it was not by someone around him. It was by uh, a victim's family member. So 
in the early 90s, he meets someone else who completely changes his life. And that was Ghislaine Maxwell. Now, Ghislaine was born to a wealthy father who it turned out um, was ethically challenged. And he actually died that same year that Ghislaine met Jeffrey. And after his death, um, a scandal sort of erupted about his fortune. And there, I think he owed a lot of people a lot of money. And so after he died, Ghislaine, who had been her dad's favorite, was left relatively penniless. Now, that's their version of penniless. That is not my version of penniless. Like, I read the numbers. And I was like, that feels like a lot of money still. But when you grow up on such a that scale of wealth, it felt like nothing to her. So growing up rich um, in Britain, she was friends with the royal family, all of these movers and shakers, both in the UK and the United States. So she's got all the connections, but she's got no money now. The exact opposite, Epstein now had the money, but he didn't have any connections. And that's what he craved. That's what he wanted. So it's what I would describe as a match made in hell. They completely complimented the other in terms of what they wanted going forward. And from there, it just got worse. They dated for a while, but eventually they were just described as being like best friends. But it, I think it was always a little weird and people were always like, I don't understand what's going on with them, but whatever. Now, she began to procure young girls and young women for Epstein to sexually abuse. So she often acted as a recruiter. Now, that's something that is super common among sex offenders. I think that people think that sex trafficking looks in a certain way and it's not how it looks. A lot of people, you know, they hear things on social media or the news. I'm going to put that in um, air quotes. That sex trafficking is like a type of situation that looks kind of like the movie Taken. And does that happen? Yes, it does happen. But is that likely what's happening in each of your communities under your nose? No, it is not. Is there sex trafficking in your community? Absolutely, there is. And I say that to people in urban areas and rural areas alike. It may look a little different. It's still going on in all of these areas. And so what it really usually looks like is there's a vulnerable kid, usually an at-risk youth, a teenager, who has some sort of vulnerability. And it's usually one or both of two things. And it's love and it's money. And what the trafficker is a master at is figuring out what that vulnerability is. And they hone in and they exploit it. And then once they do that, they've got the kid in the palm of their hands. But a lot of kids are distrustful of men. A lot of young women, especially, are distrustful of men. It's a lot harder for a man to approach a, sh a young girl in public or wherever than it is for a woman. So oftentimes the traffickers are due. And sometimes the traffickers are women, too. I don't want anybody to think that that's not the case because it absolutely is. And I think that we're seeing a lot more of that than we used to. Um, but say there is a male trafficker, oftentimes he will have a female partner of some sort. Um, and it could be that she's just completely complicit and has been with him from day one it could be that she started out as a victim and she is now she's culpable she's helped running the show even if she did start out as a victim and in a lot of a lot of areas i don't think they probably did it here because i think they are so much cleaner and better than everyone else but uh that person is called the bottom or the bottom bitch which is like kind of counterintuitive because she's like the top of the hierarchy so you'd think but whatever so Oftentimes, she will act as a recruiter for these girls. So she'll be the one who approached them. And when you watch the um, film and read the book, you hear that some of the girls were approached by Gilan at places like Mar-a-Lago and others, and that they felt safe. Like, she made them feel safe. And that is so incredibly common. And I can give you a real-life example Runaway youth are at an exponentially higher risk of being trafficked than other kids. It's just so, so dangerous for a kid to be out in the street without any kind of supervision at all. 
for many reasons, but especially for this, it's extremely dangerous for kids to run away from home, even when the homes aren't so safe themselves sometimes. We heard once from a trafficker who went to a fast food restaurant to get a cheeseburger or whatever, and he's standing in line, he looks over and he sees a teenage girl sitting at a table and she looks kind of upset and she's sitting alone. She's not eating. She's got a book bag overflowing with belongings and she just doesn't look like she has anywhere to go or to be. So he gets his food and he goes back out to his car and he kind of sits there and he waits for a little bit and he watches her because he wants to see, well, is she going to eat? Is she meeting someone? Does she have somewhere to go? And no, he watches her for a while and he's like, okay, prime target. So does he approach her? No. He goes home and he tells his girlfriend, hey, got a great new mark. It's your time. So she's like, okay, go to work. She goes back to the restaurant. She approaches the girl and asks if she's okay. And the girl is naturally apprehensive at first, but the recruiter knows that. She sees it. So she says, listen, hey, I know what you're going through. I've been there. When I was 15, I left home too. My mom's boyfriend was coming to my room at night and I wasn't going to do it anymore. I've been there. Can I just buy you a burger? That's all. I just want to help you out. I totally get it. And so then she lets her because that's nice. Well, now the recruiter's foot is in the door. And from there, she just has to do and say whatever it takes to make this girl feel comfortable and accepted and definitely, most importantly, safe. And if she achieves that by the end of that conversation, she probably has her in her hand. And if she can say, hey, I just want to give you a place to stay for the night. You don't owe me any money. You don't have to give me anything at all. Just let me help you out tonight. Boom. They've got her. And that isn't dissimilar to the method that Epstein and Gillen used. Now, it wasn't exactly the same. They weren't like staying all night and he wasn't taking a girl in and pimping her out to others all of the time. It worked a little bit. His was actually a little bit more complex than that. And what we see oftentimes with sex trafficking is it can be something as unsophisticated as one guy on what used to be, it used to be Backpage. That was where most sex trafficking traffickers advertised the women that's been shut down. So they use different sites and it could be as simple as somebody posting on a site and saying, here are the pictures, here's this girl all the way up to the most complex, sophisticated prostitution and human trafficking rings of which there do exist all across the continental United States. There's no doubt about it. And this little thing that they had going on here was pretty complicated because not only was he raping them, he was also pimping some of them out and he was using them to recruit more. He had like a child molestation pyramid scheme. It's really bizarre. He would have a girl come in and um, he'd say, hey, bring one of your friends. And so then she'd bring her friends and then that girl would bring her friends and so on and so forth. And if you think about how quickly that must have grown, how many, and he's doing this over the course of 30 years. Crazy. I, I don't think we could possibly ever know how many victims there actually are. It is just awful. And he was doing it all over too. He wasn't just doing it in Palm Beach. He was doing it at his ranch in New Mexico, uh, his Manhattan town home. He has an island or whatever in the Virgin Islands, and he was prolific. He was first reported in 1997 for raping a, an actress in Santa Monica. She reports to the police. What happens? Nothing. Well, he, he was a billionaire staying in a very swanky, famous hotel. Who is she? No one. So... She never even hears back from the police. It, it's just, it's unreal. And that kind of behavior, when that happens, it emboldens these offenders. Because then they're like, I got away with it. And they just keep going and going and it escalates. And I think that feeds into what we were talking about before when they're just doing it in plain sight. Yeah. Because nobody ever does anything about it. 
So why wouldn't they be? So he, he certainly didn't stop in 97. He continued on and on. And one victim reported to police eventually that he told her he had to orgasm three times a day. So according to other reports, it's three different girls every day. So he is molesting three girls a day for the better part of 30 years. It, it's just, I, I can't get over it. It's insane. And he's doing it, it seems like, for many years without any type of attention whatsoever. But then we come to 2005, and that's when he finally gets reported to a police officer who actually does something. And a stepmom of a 14-year-old girl calls the police. And at that time, the report was just like really simple. It was like, my stepdaughter was sexually abused by a rich guy in Palm Beach. And that was it. That was it. That was all they knew at that time. But that started a two-year-long investigation. Well, it started out as a two-year-long investigation. And then, you know, that was in 2005. And here we are in 2021. So, and it's still it's still ongoing. The litigation's ongoing. Charges have only just been filed against some people. So police talked to dozens of young girls and women. By that next February, they had identified 47 girls. And I say identified. That means that they knew the names of 47 different girls at that point in time who he'd done this to at the Palm Beach Beach Mansion alone. Right? I mean, talking about all the other places because it's the Palm Beach Police Department who is investigating this. So it's just the Palm Beach Mansion that I think that they're talking about here. And as the reports begin to come in, a very specific pattern of behavior emerges in almost every case. Like they're, they're like strikingly similar. Usually a young girl, usually in her teens, is recruited either by Lynn or by one of the, a girl that she knows that's from school or sports or something like that. And they would go to the house and they would wait in the kitchen. And then they would be escorted upstairs to the master bedroom where there was a massage table. And they would be escorted up either by Guy Lynn or one of Epstein's other conspirators. So there was Nadia Marcinkova. I can't, I don't probably not pronounce that right. And then Sarah Kellen, which is an interesting one because she's now Sarah Vickers because she is married to a NASCAR driver. Yes, she has never been charged in any kind of crime. So one of these women would take the girls upstairs and they were told you give a massage to him. He'd either be on the table already or he'd come out on the table and he'd be naked. And the girls knew I mean, these, they weren't stupid. They knew something was going on. They knew that they were going to make a couple hundred bucks and they weren't going over there to just like rub his shoulders, but they didn't know. They didn't understand. I think that what was going on and what it really meant. And that is also something very common. I mean, they're children, like they don't, they don't understand. And they don't understand that they're being victimized. They don't understand what this is. And they have no earthly idea what kind of effect this could have on their life as they go on. Because again, their children. That's why they can't legally consent to sex because they don't even know what they're doing. So they'd be told that they had to take off their clothes and massage them. They either had little or no clothing on whatever, and he didn't have any clothing on. And so they would be paid, I think, $200 if they just gave him a massage. But if they did more, they got paid more. So if they performed sexual acts on him or if they let him, I say let, but I don't like that word here. If Epstein performed sexual assault on them, they made more money. So for a kid who, you know, was growing up in a house where there's never been much money, 200 bucks is a lot of money. For a kid who's never had new shoes or new clothes or, you know, just wants to fit in, like, it's a big deal. And it, you know, it, it's life-changing for them. And they just don't understand the, the depth of it, I don't think. The thing I felt was really striking, you know, when... I don't know how many times you read a book and then you watch a movie and the movie doesn't 
quite do the book justice, mm -hmm. right? Because the problem is in a movie, you only have about an hour and a half to get a whole story out. But in a book, you can it can take you can take your time and read and you got all these pages that explain things. And that's what I found personally shocking mm -hmm. was taking the time to read the book and read these victims' accounts of yeah. what actually happened to them. And I think that it was really strong that these girls, these 14, 15 year old girls would show up and it all, I'm gonna say, same as you put it in air quotes, started off innocent enough. It wasn't innocent on his behalf. He knew exactly what he was doing. Oh yeah. The girls, you know, they didn't have much money and the opportunity to have $200 and all you have to do is go over there and your friend, this friend that you know from high school is telling you, hey, I've done it. It's not a big deal. You can get mm -hmm. 200 bucks. So when you think about it, yeah, you go, you have this, it's a horrible experience. Obviously it's not normal, but he tells you it's normal, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have that in the back of your head and you're a kid. So you can't even yes. process this emotionally anyway, but you have an adult who is clearly someone who has a lot of money. And then this woman, Gilin, the thing mm -hmm. that you didn't say about her was you know, she's British. So she's got that really cool accent. Oh, yeah. You know, and she's pretty. She's very pretty, very charismatic, very outgoing by all reports. People loved her, said she's yeah. hilarious. And she's telling you this is normal too. So exactly. Why would you not be going along with this? I mean, she's this beautiful, wealthy woman who sounds really cool to listen to because she's got this accent. She's probably very smart. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Jeffrey mm -hmm. is very intelligent. Yep. And he's telling you too that this is very normal. And you know what? He's got other girls that can come in. So if this isn't your bag, you can just go ahead and go and he'll right. fill your spot with another girl. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait, I can do this. And yeah. you know, a lot of these victims kind of came back in their stories and said this. Oh yeah. It's like such an important point. You didn't even think about that, you know, as adults, but when you're, you're so impressionable when you're that age anyway, and then like this, I mean, there was this air of um, excitement and glamor about it. These are these oh, yeah. super, super wealthy people, you know, on a scale, unlike any other. And they are, they're telling them it's cool. It's, you know, it, it's not a big deal and everybody's doing it. And their and their friends are saying the same thing. Oh, I do it. It's not a big deal. And so it's completely normalized to them and you know, they're children. And when it came out in the media, I watched, I, w I went back and watched some of the old footage and some of them called them child prostitutes. And that burns me up. They are children. They yes. cannot legally consent to sexual acts. The, the fact that the world, the word child and prostitute have ever been used in the same sentence is disgusting. They've been dragged in the, the mud since then. I mean, I'm not going to get into what the defense attorneys said and did. They were not prostitutes. They were victims of a grown ass man acting out his sexual deviance on their young bodies, period. That is what happened. And it messed a lot of them up. And this messes people up all of the time. It's not, it's you know, the long-term effects of sexual abuse on a child are extreme. And a lot of people don't understand that. And I think that this is even more nuanced than that because of that stuff that we were just talking about, like this, this life of luxury and glamour, and it's all so normalized to them and they just have no idea. And a lot of them said they were scared of him. They saw how rich he was. They saw the powerful people that he had around him. And some of them, he'd even say things like, I can get away with whatever I want. And he and Gilin, they employed a myriad tactics of grooming and controlling the victims and other witnesses. You know, they'd start out oftentimes more gently with charm, 
promises of money and I mean, giving them money, uh, help with their education. I'm going to get you into NYU, into NYU. You just got to keep your grades up. I'm going to get you um, your massage, your actual massage therapy certification donations. They even donated money to the Palm Beach Police Department. He, Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> donated $90,000 to the police department in 2004. So a year before all of this started being investigated. And it's interesting because um, Chief Michael Ryder, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, he said when he first met him, like that gut instinct, you know, that cop's instinct, like that when you've been doing this work for long enough, you start, you get those. And I, I've gotten them too. And it hasn't been wrong yet. He just got that weird instinct that something was just a little bit just weird. Like he skeeved him out. And um, he said that when he was walking him out that day in 2004, that Jeffrey Epstein had brought Nadia with him. Nadia was like, maybe like 19 years old or something at that time. And it was just very bizarre. And he said he didn't like introduce them or even like acknowledge that she was there. It was almost like he was just like showing her off and just like wanted him to know. And he said, it was just like weird. I mean, he didn't think anything beyond it at that time. I think he's just like, okay, weird dude. Well, boy, did that come back around, but yeah, donating money. They do it, you know, all of the um, nicer ways, so to speak at first. And if that doesn't work, they move on to other things. And as we'll talk about when we get into some of the litigation, legal maneuvering, like very shady things, in my opinion. And if that didn't work, outright threats and stalking, multiple people associated with this case, including the police officers, the victims, their families, the civil attorneys, they were surveilled. People were going through their trash. People were following them places and they were trying to intimidate them. They were trying to scare them into not following through with this case. It's like something you'd see in a movie. I mean, it really is like truth is stranger than fiction here. Like this is crazy, crazy stuff. So they would take whatever it took to try to keep their game going. And it finally seemed that for all this time, he was going to face some consequences for what he'd done on all these girls. And I think that that is because of the detective who was assigned to the case. So Detective Joseph Rakiri got assigned to it. And I, I want to make sure I point out what a fantastic investigation this was. Detective Rakiri, who has since passed away, did everything you could ever ask of a detective. He followed every lead, he questioned every witness, and he treated every victim with respect. And we live in a world today where there are still a lot of police officers investing sex crimes who don't get it, and they don't do that. So we're talking back, this is in 2005. And in 2021, we still live in a world where a lot of law enforcement officers just aren't trained in trauma-informed care. And because of that, they ask questions that are best offensive and that worse re-traumatizing and oftentimes they don't believe people because they didn't understand or sometimes still don't understand the way that that the brain works when somebody's been through a traumatic event and they're like oh well you know this detail and this detail were different so she's lying no sir that is not the case but he didn't do any of that here and I think that that should be remarked upon that is a remarkable thing for 2005 the way he handled this investigation and the way he truly uncovered every stone and did everything that you could ask for a detective to do and beyond that he had the full support of the Palm Beach police chief Michael Ryder so chief Ryder backed in the entire way he he didn't only do right by these victims he truly went above and beyond it's unreal how I I just I can't Clearly, I'm like kind of speechless. They just were so impressive and they had the courage to do the right thing. And I don't think that everybody would have. They did not bow to political pressure. They did not bow to, you know, rich people trying to persuade them. They didn't care. They said, no, this is the right thing to do. And it is my responsibility to protect all of the citizens of Palm Beach County, not just the wealthy ones. And so it was really funny or I don't know if funny is the right word, bizarre is that 
So we talked a second ago about how Epstein donated that money in 2004. Well, then in September of 2005, which is like six months into the investigation, Epstein called the chief and offered him more money as a donation. (laughs) So to us, that seems like just ridiculous, but it worked for him for so long. So, of course, he expected it to work. And this time it finally didn't work. These officers were like, no. In 2006, Detective Mercury and Chief Ryder submitted their probable cause affidavit to the state's attorney's office. And a guy by the name of Barry Krischer was the state's attorney at that time. And that's completely normal. That's how usually how these work. It works a little bit differently in every jurisdiction. It depends on how things go. Like in my experience, when I was a prosecutor, the detective would bring the PC, as we call it, to the prosecutor's office and either a screening prosecutor or myself, if I was able to, we would look through the report and decide, um, okay, do we have enough here? Or are there some additional things that you need to do in your investigation? That's usually how that works. If it's enough, they get it on file, they get a warrant, they go arrest them. And that is what they do like almost always. I don't, I've never seen a sex crime where it wasn't done that way because you do have an, you have a safety issue here. There could be an ongoing safety threat to children. If you don't do it that way, like you don't have the time to waste by calling a grand jury. But and so that's um, criminal charges, right? Yes, that's criminal charges. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess that's the benefit. You bring a criminal charge against someone like this so you can put them in jail so they'll stop molesting children. Right. <gasps> important. I think that most of us think that's important. And so, you know, that's what they thought was going to happen. It's what usually happened. And the chief, he considered Barry Kersher to be a friend. He thought he had a great history of protecting children and he saw him as a fierce advocate for protecting children and when the chief first told him about it krisher was like yeah 100 percent support you all the way we will prosecute this guy we're going to get him but somewhere along the way that changed and all of a sudden krisher would no longer take the chief's calls and wouldn't call him back and the assistant state's attorneys who were assigned to the case weren't calling the detective back No one's keeping the victims in the loop. They're all just sitting out there on the island and no one is telling them what is going on. And Rickeri actually left voicemails for two assistant state's attorneys. They didn't call him back. So he's like, F this. And he just goes over there. He just shows up unannounced. (laughs) And he, which I think is just awesome. Um, He's like, you know what? I'm going to make you talk to me. So he gets there and he finds out that they offered him a plea. Never told anyone. Didn't tell the victims, which is not just unprofessional. It is unethical. You are required to tell the victims what the plea agreement is or the plea offer is. Didn't do it. Nobody knew. And so the police were like, no, they refused to agree. It. They're like, absolutely not. This is disgusting. And so eventually they're told that the case is going to be submitted to a grand jury rather having the uh, warrant issued. And again, that is notable. It is very strange. And in Indiana, just like in Florida, like grand juries are typically only called when it's a controversial case. And that wasn't there wasn't anything controversial here. Krischer said he was worried about the credibility of the victims. Well, there were 47 of them. That's not controversial. Okay. 47. You have a serial child predator here, but what's the one thing that sets him apart? Hmm. He's rich. That's it. He's rich. He's an old rich white dude. So as it became clear that they were sworn going to do right by these victims. <laughs> Chief Ryder did something huge. I, I've i never seen anything like this. He wrote a letter to the state's attorney, to Perry Grisher, and asked him to recuse himself because he clearly couldn't be fair. And he wrote letters to every parent of all of those children and told them that justice was not being served. Wow. 
it's unprecedented. I've, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. He showed real courage and he had been under pressure. He said that there had been a powerful local politician who'd come into the police station more than once and told him, Hey, why don't you just let this go? You know, and essentially saying these victims didn't matter and their lives didn't matter. You know, they weren't Palm Beachers. They came from the wrong side of the track. So come on, let's just, let's just sweep this under the rug and move on. And the chief wasn't having it. And so in that summer of 2006, a grand jury did convene. And um, the idea was that two main victims were going to testify. The main victim in the case went before the grand jury, had never met the prosecutors one time, not once, and had hmm. never been prepared in any kind of way, which is important. And, you know, it's not the prosecutor should never be coaching a witness on what to say, but they're children. <laughs> so it sometimes it goes so long so far just to be like okay this is what the courtroom looks like here's where the judge sits here's where this person sits and you do need to discuss what to expect you you, you have to do that with any kind of witness no matter if you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney you gotta let people know what's going on and these are children and they're traumatized children so I just don't understand I mean I think I do understand and I that's what's so upsetting about it is I think I know exactly what was going on and there were that victim who did testify said she felt like she was being attacked by the prosecutor I buy the because it's not it doesn't work that way in a um, grand jury. She felt like she was being prosecuted, or excuse, yeah, like she was being prosecuted, which is disgusting. And then the second girl who had been assaulted by Epstein like hundreds of times, including a brutal rape, they did not call her as a witness at all. They called one person only. Wow. So here you have a serial, yeah, serial predator, forty-seven known victims, and you call one. Does that seem right? No. Mm-hmm. Nope. So no surprise, the grand jury only chose to indict him only on like one count of felony solicitation of prostitution. That's it. And that isn't even enough for a prison sentence. And it's like, what? So the chief was like, you know what? No, we're not. We're not doing this. We're not playing this game. So he did something else that was unprecedented. And he reached out directly to federal authorities himself and asked them to get involved. So at first, again, it looked like things were going to happen. FBI expanded the investigation. They found more victims. They did a great job. You know, they didn't do anything wrong either. The United States attorney at that time for the Southern District of Florida was the future Secretary of Labor in the Trump administration, Alex Acosta. And he, like Barry Kirscher had before, assured the chief, we got this. The victims will be honored. This guy's going to get prosecuted. You know, we have to shut this down. But again, things took a turn. And it seemed out of nowhere, the U.S. Attorney's Office agreed to a non-prosecution agreement. And that means that they agreed they wouldn't prosecute Epstein at the federal level so long as he was prosecuted at the state level. And they were like, what in the hell is going on here? And as more details came to light, they found out, one, that Acosta had worked for Kenneth Starr. You may know who that is from the impeachment of Bill Clinton. He had been an underling of Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr is one of Epstein's lawyers. He had hired infamous defense attorneys. The normal person won't probably know who these people are, but Jay Lefkowitz, Roy Black, Alan Dershowitz, Gerald Lefkowitz, Star, all uh, notorious defense attorneys. And they, the Florida attorney that they had on the case, and this is, it goes back to me saying that they would have these legal maneuvering that they would employ to try to get their way, was um, a guy who employed the former ASA, the former assistant state's attorney's husband, well, that that caused a conflict. And so she could no longer be on the case. So she was the SVU prosecutor. She was the person who had experience in sex crimes. She was trying to do a good job. And they did something that got her off the case. And then it went over to these other two ASAs who didn't do shit, essentially. Wow. Um, 
And I want to point out in 2011 that Acosta held a press conference where he basically said, eh, we did a great job. Everyone else sucked. Like we didn't have all this information and the police didn't provide us the information in 2006. Horseshit. They did. They absolutely did. They just didn't like do it. The they police. It sounds like the police had quite the file on him anyway. And so I guess, so what you're saying is everything that happened prior to getting Acosta involved. So that was a case a criminal case in the state of Florida. Yes, exactly. And so that distinction. So they, they didn't really do anything like they slapped him on the wrist basically and said, well, you're not going to jail. Their plan was to do that. But because of that, the chief was like, well, no, because it is possible to also be prosecuted in the federal court. You can actually be prosecuted in both. Usually doesn't happen that way. Um, state's attorneys are required to file cases. Federal prosecutors can kind of pick and choose which ones they want. We always joked around that they got to cherry pick them. And my federal prosecutor friends listening to this will probably be mad at me for saying that. But um, they, they have way more discretion over which cases they take. Well, it was such a bad case. In terms of bad, I mean like such yeah. bad acts. It was a strong yeah. case that they were willing to pick it up until they bowed to this pressure. And more information came to light. Like there were these weird meetings in hotels between Acosta and the defense attorneys. The assistant United States attorney who was assigned to the case told the defense attorneys, don't email me at my government email address, email me at my Gmail address. Okay, that's weird. I would never in a million years do that. I probably want them to have my email address. But that just is biz- like that that's shady and there were um email correspondence where like the defense attorneys were like no we're gonna do this this and this way where they're like running the show and it's like what and wow. i mean it happened like that that's what happened and side note it did lead to um acosta finally resigning from the trump administration when all this stuff came back up in 2016 and 17 when it started getting all of the media attention that should have had all along he had to resign so He's facing 57 counts in federal court at that point in time, 57. The mandatory minimum was 10 years, and his exposure was a lot more than that. And if he had gone, if he had been charged with that, he would have received well over 10 years. There's no doubt in my mind, especially when you have that many victims. Uh, Most judges like to say you don't get a victim for free. So if you've got multiple victims, more than likely your your sentences as to those victims get stacked a lot of the time. So to, to put that in perspective just a little bit, around the same time in Florida, there was a school principal who got 10 years for sexting with a cop pretending to be a 14 year old boy, which is disgusting behavior and he deserves to go to prison. But he got 10 years for sexting with someone who turned out to be an adult versus a person who's actually sexually abusing at least 47 girls. Wow. And what did they offer Jeffrey Epstein? He pled guilty to a state solicitation charge. He was sentenced to 18 months. He served only 13 of them. And when I say served, certainly using that term loosely, he was allowed to leave the jail six days a week for 12 hours a day. And they agreed to no charges for any named or unnamed conspirators. I'll get back to that in a second because that's crazy as shit. He was moved from the harsher jail to a smaller, safer one. So he, he... the way he got assigned, I think, was based on the severity of the offense. So he's in with, like, murderers, rapists, uh, appropriately. And he gets put into this smaller, low offender where it's mostly, like, drug addiction issues and prostitutes, ironically. And he never spent any time whatsoever in the general population. Like, the sheriff, on the very first night he was there, put him in the infirmary. So he was never around any of those other hardened criminals at all. Next day, he gets moved over. And 
he had his own wing at the safer jail. And he was allowed to employ a security guard to watch over him while he was in the jail. That's ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it. Like, I'm like, what in the actual, I mean, Florida's messed up, but what? Like, I don't even, I can't, I don't know. I, I've known about this forever. And I still, every time I read it or see it, I'm like, what in the actual hell is going on down there? I but, think um, it's a lot to the influence that he had, his, oh, money, yeah. his money and his influence in even being able to secure that kind of an arrangement for himself. I mean, that is crazy. Absolutely. And that part I mentioned before about how no charges for any named or unnamed conspirators, literally never seen anything like that. What? What? Like, oh, well, if anybody ever, you know, helped you yeah, in any way. Unnamed. Like, so, you know, people that were named like Sarah Cullen and Nadia Marcinkova and Gielan Maxwell, Scott Free. And there was one um, younger girl who was in her late teens, early 20s who had started out going over there and giving him a massage, but then she ended up just bringing him tons and tons and tons of girls. And the police felt that she had kind of moved far enough along that she needed to be held responsible too. And that's a very controversial topic, but we'll go into another day in terms of people starting out as victims and then becoming culpable in some way, whether or not they should be charged. Lots of fighting over that between some of the different disciplines within this overall field. This was a thorough, impressive investigation. It was great. And prosecutors at both the state and federal level completely betrayed their oaths, completely. And in my opinion, spit in the face of these victims. I have never, ever in my career seen such a miscarriage of justice. Never. It is complete horseshit. And as a former longtime prosecutor, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that they did this. I count some of the best, most tenacious prosecutors in existence as close friends, and they have all been beyond appalled at what happened here. It's disgusting. I can't I still I mean I've known about this for years I still can't wrap my mind around it and interestingly to note Barry Krishner himself was accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault by a subordinate employee in 1992 I think that that was settled out of court for an undisclosed term so I don't know what happened with it but um it's kind of interesting yeah so this all could have ended right there it could have if if either of those offices had done right by these victims especially the feds, honestly, because they are able to get so much more prison time out of them. They could have taken this guy off the street, this serial predator off the street, and they would have saved, in my opinion, probably hundreds of victims from having to go through that. But they did not have the courage or the gumption to do it. And I mean, I think it's kind of extreme, but in my opinion, I think they carry some culpability for anybody who was victimized after that because there had to have been a ton and they, they could have stopped it and they didn't do it simply by not doing their jobs. Okay, so not too far after this, like within, I think maybe just even a few weeks after um, the conviction uh, is when Bradley Edwards first filed a lawsuit under the Crime Victims' Rights Act. So that was some legislation that was enacted to protect the rights of crime victims. And part of that is that they're to be kept informed of what's going on and most importantly, a plea agreement. And because they were arguing that the federal prosecutors did not tell the victims the terms of the plea agreement actually it goes way more into that and when brad's on the show we're gonna talk about it it was like they were keeping it a secret there's an email from i think jay lefkowitz to the prosecutor that's like you don't tell the victims i mean literally that's what it says and they didn't you can't do that you can't that's that's a that's beyond a big no-no you can't do it now when i was prosecutor I always made sure the victims understood at the end of the day, it's my decision. And, you know, I'm going on to what I think is best for you and for the community, but I'm also going to make sure that you're kept in the loop every step of the way. 
and I will listen to what you have to say because that's what's important. This is about them. This is their life. And I think it's easy sometimes or for us who are in this business that we're like, that we forget that this is actually someone's life. It's our job and we're passionate about it, but this is someone's life. They have every right to be informed of what's going on the entire way through. So Edwards and some of the other attorneys filed that lawsuit saying that the CVRA had been violated. And because of that, um, it's a next argument that the plea agreement was invalid. And so that started over a decade of litigation that is still ongoing. <laughs> it started in 2008 and today it is still ongoing. And he's done that case pro bono. He knew that he couldn't collect on it. That wasn't about money. It was about doing the right thing. He has been trying to do the right thing by these ladies forever. And I think it's so exciting that he's going to be on the next show. He's going to tell us all about the craziness that has ensued uh, as he's battled Epstein and some of his buddies in court for the last 12 years. Because there is, again, if you read his book, which, by the way, is called Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein, it's crazy. Again, it's like something you would see in a freaking movie, the stuff that happened. It's like completely bananas. Okay, so bringing us closer up to speed to now. A judge did, the victims did win um, an important ruling in 2018. A judge ruled that the CVRA had been violated by the federal prosecutors in that case back in 0608. And that meant that there could be a new hearing in front of a federal judge where victims have the right to express opposition. And that could potentially mean a new prosecution based on the facts, not necessarily, but potentially. And so at that point, when that's happening in the civil world, New York is doing their criminal investigation. And a lot of people don't know that. So back when that investigation had happened in Palm Beach, they had executed a search warrant on his Palm Beach mansion. And it became very clear very quickly that they had been tipped off. There were like hard drives missing, just weird, like some pictures from the walls. But what was also especially interesting about that is that a lot of it was still there. There were like bizarre pictures of very young women in various states of undress and it's like okay so they took some of this stuff but they left that like they're like oh it's okay like what world do you live in they thought that was, I mean you know what I mean I think that that goes to show their mentality they're like they didn't even think to take some of that stuff which to us is like that's disgusting dude and I think to them it was like what it's normal no it's not no. so in the when they executed the search warrant in New York it became clear that he had not been tipped off this time, which was great because they uncovered like, I think they said it was hundreds to thousands of photographs of new children. Oh, and right around that same time in November of 2018, this case also came big time back out into light in the public because there was an explosive piece in the Miami Herald published. And in that article, they had 80 women identified as victims. And I don't mean identified in the article. I mean that they reported that they had talked with 80 different women. You're seeing, you know, what a large scale this is on. So you know, at that point, the victims are like, finally, we've been through this crap for years. And we will talk to Brad Edwards about this way more. The stuff that the victims have been put through over the course of that time, not just what the prosecutors did to them, but what the attorneys have done to them and said to them and said about them in various states of litigation. You know, they've really been put through it. And so finally, they're like, he's arrested. I can't believe it. Like, finally, like something's going to happen. So he has a bail hearing where I think this is great. Some of the victims were able to testify and thankful for that because that would end up being their only chance to testify in front of him. So he gets denied bail and three weeks later, he commits suicide in jail. 
There are many theories that he did not kill himself and was instead murdered by powerful people who had serious dirt on him. And so we'll get into those conspiracy theories with future guests. I don't know. I do know that he did have friends in powerful places and that multiple people, most of the victims have reported that he would try his best to keep dirt on people, to keep dirt on these powerful figures so that if he ever needed something, he could use it against them. And I got to think back in 06, 07, 08, that is probably exactly what happened. Who did he have something on that intervened and made sure that that didn't go any further than it did? I do think that probably happened. So disgustingly, two days before he died, he signed a new will and it put all his assets into a trust that made it a lot more difficult for the victims to get restitution. So just like evil, like yeah. a final, ugh, just disgusting. So you might be wondering, where's Gielin in all of this? Well, she was kind of in hiding and finally, in, 20, in July of 2020, the FBI found her in, at one of her properties in the New England countryside. So they arrested her. Charges remain pending. I think she's charged with like four counts of procuring and transporting minors for the purpose of prostitution. Her exposure, meaning how much time she could see in jail in that case, is 35 years, and she was denied bail. And so, of course, there's a lot of talk about her safety. Again, same kind of talk as what was given about Jeffrey Epstein when he died. Lots of conspiracies are floating around. So a lot of people hypothesize that there are people in high places that could go down as she talks. And those that they have a vested interest in making sure that doesn't happen. It'll be very interesting to see how that goes because that is a typical strategy of prosecutors is if I know that you have all this information, then I'm going to try to try to strike a deal with you so that I can get some of these other people. So I can guarantee you those types of negotiations are probably going on. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out in the next few months. I don't know. I really don't know what's going to happen. Um, so she's in custody now, right? Yes, she is. Yeah. Okay, good. So we don't have to worry about her taking off anywhere. Not right now. They, I mean, she's like, they're keeping a very close eye on her because they don't want what happened before to happen again, whether it be suicide or whatever. No matter what, it wasn't a good look. So yeah. they don't want that crap happen again. And, you know, you, we'd have to remember that his list of powerful friends or at least acquaintances is very long. A couple of former U.S. presidents, other politicians, royalty, Nobel Prize winners, billionaires, celebrities, so it's always going to make for interesting stories because there's a lot to, to work with there. I want to point out the hubris of this man was unparalleled. Like even during the pendency of the charges against him, he'd make little jokes about his love for massages. He, I mean, he was just out there in the open and he would, it's just unreal. If you look at his mugshot, if you go online and Google his mugshot, it is ridiculous. It's like this, shitting grin it's a smirk you know like oh i'm just gonna get away with it and again in 2011 so this is after all that okay he gives a statement to the new york post he says i'm not a sexual predator i'm an offender it is the difference between a murderer and a person who steals a bagel no yeah sit on that but the thing is why wouldn't he he knew he knew he could pay his way out of things he'd been doing it for 30 years until finally he couldn't anymore. But for a long time he did. And as we talked about, that emboldens people and things escalate. So in future episodes, we're going to get more into that. We're going to talk to Brad Edwards, other people, talk about what lessons we can learn from this case as just normal everyday citizens. Where where do the victims go from here? What is their recourse? What is the next step from them? What's happening with them right now? We're going to discuss all of that and more in our next episode. So 
Jamie, thank you for taking the time today to discuss this crazy set of circumstances with me. And we will bring you more next time. So until then, thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions or requests for guests, in the meantime, please submit those at supportforsurvivors.com. Stay safe and we will see you next time.